0: and welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording this episode in October 2022. This episode is all about the problem of evil, so we'll be thinking about what the problem of evil is, how it's so problematic for religion and religious belief, and think through various responses to it. We'll also see what else we get onto. Joining me in this episode, we have Matt Harris, a teacher at Cheltenham College. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me back Simon. Uh, Thank you very much and we've got Mabel Rowe who teaches philosophy and religious studies at Barton Court Grammar School in Canterbury. Hi Mabel.
1: Hi Simon thanks for having me for the first time.
0: And also from Barton Court and also a teacher of philosophy and religious studies we've got Sophie Williams.
2: Hi Simon thank you for having me back again.
0: Uh, Great to have all three of you with us. OK, so we're going to talk about the problem of evil uh, in this episode. This topic is one of the main topics discussed within the philosophy of religion and as such appears on a number of specifications. It's part of the AQA philosophy spec, the religious study specifications from both OCR and Edexcel and others. And it's also on the International Baccalaureate specification. If you're studying Scottish hires, then although it isn't referenced, it's good to be aware of it, particularly because David Hume was interested in it. Okay, so let's start with the basic idea of the problem of evil. We're imagining a typical Judeo-Christian outlook, although we may well come back to that as we go through and think about one or two other different traditions. So um, what's the, what are the basics of the problem of evil first? So, Matt, do you want to start us off by thinking about the basic idea, please, and then we'll, we'll take it from there.
3: Yeah, thanks, Simon, of course. Now, this is a really fascinating, interesting topic. It's the one which really got me interested in philosophy. I think as a teenager, I was gripped by it so much because I was wrestling with, why would an all-loving, all-powerful God allow there to be evil and suffering in the world? Because, of course, it goes back to what we find in Hume in his dialogues concerning natural religion. Why would God, if he was all-powerful, allow there to be evil and suffering? Surely he could stop it. He'd have the power to stop it if he was omnipotent. If he was all-loving, surely he'd want to stop it. So if he's both, like the Judeo-Christian God uh, is meant to be, if he's both omnipotent and all loving, why is there evil and suffering in the world? And of course, so many problems fall out of this, such as what do we mean by evil and suffering, and the various reasons why a God like this, who is meant to be all powerful and all loving, would in in fact allow, allow it in the first place. So this can become a very problematic for theists um, in two different ways. One is of course the logical problem of evil, which is most famously formulated by J.R. Mackie in his 1955 article, Evil and Omnipotence. This is a meant to be a hard disproof of this theistic God, uh, where you have what's known as the inconsistent triad of God being all-powerful, all-loving, and the evil and suffering existing. They're logically incompatible. As soon as you use one of the theodicies or possible ways to get around this problem, then you're out of the logical problem and into what's called William Rowe's evidential problem of evil not that it's a hard disproof of the existence of god but it just makes this theistic god of omnipotence and benevolence implausible there's either too much evil and suffering it's too bad or there's pointless disteleological evil and suffering in other words uh, evil and suffering which has no use has no point so this just becomes difficult for the theists to get around um, in that sense using their theodicies but enough from me. So what, what do people make of this? What do people make of the problem even in suffering out of the many different various things I've, I've just mentioned? What, what different problems fall out of it, um, either in terms of definitions or or possible avenues to explore? Uh,
2: well, should I jump in here? So um, likewise, I was really sort of fascinated. I think this is one of the first topics that really got me interested in philosophy when I was sort of studying it for my A-levels. And um, I think almost before we sort of come on to the logical and the evidential problems of evil, um, for me, I think it's sort of my sort of interest sort of lies in the the different types of evil that we're sort of dealing with. Um, So just to briefly sort of outline those, so we've got obviously natural evil, so things that um, are perhaps beyond human control, so natural disasters, for example. Um, And then you've got moral evil, perhaps the the actions that humans are responsible for, um, like lying or stealing or murder even. And it does, it raises huge sort of problems for for, um, people um, having like a theistic um, or traditionally Judeo-Christian understanding of God of how can he be loving and allow these things to happen to um, his creation. And in many ways, I think that this is perhaps one of the most important questions that we can sort of have about God I think that students really find this when they're studying it is that this is one of the big questions that they've often had um in, about God's existence is this this logically possible when there is this huge glaring problem in front of us um, you know I find that students often really want to have this sort of conversation and um, see what type of resolutions there are to it. And sort of when it comes to this distinction that we make in evil, um, of there being natural and moral, um, one of the conversations that always comes up is, you know, are humans just responsible for moral evil? Um, What if there is like a predestination that God has determined which actions I'm going to take and not? Um, And likewise, could humans actually be responsible for some of the natural evils that happen? So um, humans impact on on the climate, for example, you know, to what extent are humans morally responsible? responsible for the evil in the world um and to what extent to what extent does God actually have an ability or a power to be able to intervene in our day-to-day lives so yeah, raises a a whole load of problems
1: (laughs) to sort of get to grips with um yeah I, I agree I think especially for kind of modern critiques of religion problem of evil comes out as their kind of big talking point like if you look at Dawkins or Hitchens or even people like Stephen Fry who aren't you know, known for critiquing religion, they will kind of critique this idea of either God shouldn't allow evil or God is evil and therefore is not this kind of classically theistic idea that kind of Christians have. But it seems to be kind of a relatively new world idea. So, you know, Mackey publishing it, you know, mid 1900s, I think kind of before that, and even just the kind of Judeo idea of uh, God doesn't necessarily fall into the same issues as, as modern ideas of kind of what evil and good are. I think the, the idea of evil and, and good being binary tend to be kind of more newer ideas in um, kind of culture and, and society. So I really like this as a discussion point. I don't personally teach this side of the course, but Miss Williams does. And uh, when I see her class and we discuss it, they really just want to uh, kind of get stuck in with this this issue and, and especially the problem of evil and suffering. And it is just so interesting, I think, for, for kind of modern philosophy of God.
3: I think it's really interesting. When you mentioned about how um, evil is kind of a more modern issue, I, I completely agree with you there, Mabel, because... If you look back, you know, Jean-Luc Nancy, he published a, a work about 15, 20 years ago, I think it might have been, and he tries to trace the concepts of evil. And he says that if you look into um, evil prior to about the first half of the 20th century, it wasn't really a very important topic. And people were attributing evil mainly to just things going wrong, systems breaking down. And of course, it's when you get to the, the terrible evils you see from particularly the Second World War and the Holocaust onwards, where you start to find evil being tr- treated once more for the first time in hundreds of years as a substantive thing. And hence why you find in the latter half of the 20th century, in the first part of the 21st, language such as axis of evil, evil empire, those sorts of things. And it's led people to really um, reevaluate evil and see it as something again, which uh, it's quite surprising given that we're living in an age of technology where uh, if, you, if you listen to what, say, Boltman was saying about theology back in the tw- midway through the 20th century, this kind of substantive evil disappeared. People were, were not interested in what he called a New Testament world of angels and demons and miracles. So it's interesting that evil has made a comeback and it's back on the agenda. And he said Dawkins is talking about it, Stephen Fry is popularized, talking about this sort of thing again. So it, it does raise the question, of course, about you know, what what is evil? Is it something natural? Is it something which is made by humans? Um, and, and how does it square with the idea of this all loving, all powerful God? Lots of very interesting questions, and uh, and I, I'm looking forward to discussing them over the course of this uh, this podcast.
0: Right. Thanks, uh, all three of you. That, that's a really interesting intervention, Mabel, about thinking about evil and, and, and your comments as well, Matt. And then just as for the students, just as a kind of stretch or a challenge exercise, I just want to come back to the things that Sophie was saying about moral evil and natural evil, which are kind of classic distinctions that appear on all the specifications and sophie was starting to do it but i just want to kind of repeat it and just underline it for the students so try and list various things that you would think of naturally as natural evils so often people will mention earthquakes diseases and so on and then moral evils things that humans do but then think about certain things uh, within that so for example sophie mentioned climate change we could even think about earthquakes. So perhaps there's lots of suffering because of earthquakes, but that might just be because human beings have built lots of houses on obvious fault lines, right, because of planning regulations or whatever else, right? And so the question is, how how clearly can we distinguish natural evil from moral evil? I mean, I think there might be still be some clear examples, but it's a lot harder than you might think. So that might be an interesting debating point to have in class, because that has resonance for things we're going to think about later on around free will and and other things as well but just bear that bear that in mind okay so then just to summarize then but so we've got the whatever else we say we've got that kind of nice sharply kind of formulated distinction which which uh, i mean as all of you've said and certainly for me had resonance for me when i was a 17 year old thinking about this for the for the first time and and you're right matt so there's there's mackie who's talking about all powerful all loving and evil but um often people uh, students so in case you're getting confused people often put in omniscience as well in And there, so you might think there's not just the triad, but the the, but the kind of quartet or something, I suppose you'd say. So you know, because it might be that God's all powerful and all loving, but hey, he doesn't know what's going on. But that seems like not a not not traditional idea of of, uh, God. So there's lots of things we can explore. Um, Now, as I said at the start, this appears on specifications across lots of A levels and IB and so on. But what's interesting is that they're written in different ways, as we were discussing before we started recording so the person who looms large in OCR which Matt teaches on is Augustine so Matt do you want to lead on Augustine and then we'll we're going to bring in lots of other people later on but let's lead with Augustine because he says some very interesting things.
3: Sure Um, so Augustine was a bishop writing in the fourth and early fifth centuries at the end of the Roman Empire he was a bishop in North Africa in a place called Carthage and he's called Augustine of Hippo. Nothing to do with the animal or the Amazing Game, Hungry Hungry Hippos. Although I recommend to everybody to play that because it's fab. But uh, instead, uh, it's played called Hippo Regius. But he created what's known as uh, a soul deciding theodicy. So a theodicy is a, a, an attempt to a possible attempt to explain why an all loving, all powerful all-knowing God would allow evil and suffering and you've got to learn at least one probably more um, of these theodicies and along with Irenaeus's which we'll hear about a bit later Augustine's is one of the most important. Augustine's background is quite important he before he was a bishop long before he was a bishop uh, he was part of a, a small Christian sect like an offshoot called the Manichees And this led him to really kind of contemplate this problem of evil quite a lot. When he had his famous conversion experience and became a Christian, one of the things that he did, of course, was to reflect more upon how this all-loving, all-powerful, omniscient God would allow evil and suffering. And he started off with the Genesis texts. One of the things that he kept in mind was Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, where it says everything was good. So he said that everything that God created had to be good. Therefore, evil was not a thing that God created. Because if God created everything good, God didn't create evil as well. So what we can think about when we're looking at the inconsistent triad or quadrilateral, if we're including omniscience as well, is about what Augustine does. One of the things he does is to deny the existence of evil. So we've got God still being all loving, God still being all powerful and knowing, but evil is not You get some commentators, such as the theologian Herbert McCabe, saying that this is not what uh, Augustine was trying to do, but he wasn't trying to deny the reality of evil. But really, this is what Augustine was doing. Um, A good way to think about it is through the lens of the modern, -modern postmodern philosopher Gianni Vatimo. A quote from um, Vatimo's work on evil is, and he's channeling Augustine here, "'Evil is not, but happens.'" I'm just going to repeat that because it's quite a useful way to think about what both Fatima and Augustine were saying. Evil is not, but happens. So in other words, evil is not a thing. It's not stuff. It's not reality, but people do evil. And this leads to another crucial part of what Augustine was talking about here, that it's often given way to what's called Augustine's free will defense. In other words, evil came into the world not through God. It wasn't something that God created because God only creates good. We know this from Genesis. Instead, evil happens. It comes about through the misuse of the free will that God gave to Adam and Eve. When they disobeyed him, when Eve ate the apple and then encouraged Adam to do the, well, sorry, when Eve encouraged Adam to eat the apple, that we find, of course, in Genesis chapter three, what's called the fall of humanity, then that's when evil comes into the world. And this is where it relies, this is one of, one of the weaknesses of Augustine's approach. It seems to rely on quite a literal reading of the Genesis text, that um, because Eve is quite literally mother of humanity and Adam is the father of humanity, we find evil, the tendency to sin, being passed on from Adam and Eve to their children. And then as a result, the rest of the human race. And this happens in two different ways. One is the tendency to lust after one another, what's often called concupiscence, and the other is akrasia, which means weakness of will, that human beings have a tendency to disobey God, to misuse the free will that God has given them, and this is passed on to the rest of humanity. This this is together known as kind of original sin, and if you're studying the um, developments in Christian thought parts of the OCR specification, near the beginning of the course, you're very likely to study Augustine in quite a bit of detail. So just to summarise there, God did not create evil. Evil isn't something that God created. We know this from the Genesis text, Genesis 1, where everything God has created is good. Instead, Augustine shifts all the blame to human beings, where God has given them free will. Following the fall of the angels, we find this in City of God, where the angels have fallen. And so you have Lucifer, the devil, in the form of the snake in the Genesis text, influencing Eve to influence Adam to do the one thing that God has told them not to do, eat from the tree of knowledge. Adam does this, and then this changes humanity. So this is the start of moral evil for humans by misusing free will to eat from a tree of knowledge. And this is passed down to humans through the tendency to sin and also it changes the world. As we find in the, the text of Genesis chapter three, you have pain in childbirth. You have the exile from Eden being booted out of Eden, the flaming uh, the, the angels of the flaming swords at the gates of Eden. We have a transformation of the world. And this is, of course, the beginning of natural evil. Again, this is not anything that God has created. This is something that human beings have created through sin, through misuse of free will, disobeying God, by being tempted by the devil in the form of a snake and that's pretty much um it from, from my side of things anyway and um, if i've missed anything out or people got nothing to add um please do chip in otherwise let's i like to get to talk to talking about its various strengths and weaknesses
1: i like this because i think it's it's very convenient and i i but i don't find it convincing i find it very weak but when you look at the context that Augustine's living in, you can see kind of why he might want this to be a reality. And in fact, why this idea of evil to him is something, you know, it's a, a verb, not a noun in kind of a way. It's, you know, something that doesn't exist independent of humans' actions. Because obviously, as you said, at the end of the Roman Empire, I'm sure the, the students listening from, say, if they're looking at more kind of theology-based Uh, a levels they they know what the roman empire was like very very brutal very what we would call kind of barbaric in their punishments um all of those kind of things so he's he's in the roman empire at the end of it he's also the one who again for the the students last year in your studies if you looked at kind of war and things like that you know he's the one who originally came up with this justification for killing That fitted in with christian theology this idea of of killing being the ultimate sin um and yet he's like but you can do so in a war so he's seeing evil as this kind of like transient property of humans that depends solely on on the context and again if you're using if you're using mackie's logical problem to undermine god then mackie's the one who said there are no ethics there is no no set kind of right or wrong. So, you know, he's kind of almost using Mackie's ethics there with his kind of justification for killing while simultaneously having this convenient aspect of god's not evil, evil doesn't exist, but evil's just an absence of good. But equally what you can think of is he conveniently kind of forgets this image of god quote. So he looks so heavily in Genesis for his justification in that God made humans in his image. And yet what he's saying there is humans made perfectly, made good, and yet they have this capability for sin. And I think that's quite a convenient thing for him to leave out when he's, you know, doing this this work in Genesis.
3: I think the key, I think he hits on something really important, the image of God quote and it is a weakness in, uh, in his argument. I think he would try, if he was here, um, if he was here playing Hungry Hippos, I don't know whether he would be or not, but he would say that the key difference between God and human beings is that God is outside of time, he's eternal, and human beings are in time. And of course, this is the Platonist aspect to him which influenced so much of his upbringing, intellectually speaking. And the way in which I've been um, taught to think about it is that it's almost like, imagine a clock going around, eventually the hands will change. And so there's what Augustine called prevenient grace, the grace that God gives to human beings to keep them constant. But then, of course, if we're in time, the will must change eventually. And so eventually the will shifted, the prevenient grace ran out and human beings sinned as a result. And then, of course, as you say, evil is not is not a thing, it's an absence of good. And then human beings have fallen short of what we were made to be in the image of God by deviating away but it's it's the, the, the crucial difference between god and the image of god is time it's that dimension which of course has crucially affected us and um, meant that our will has deviated away from god's own according to augustine but then of course it raises all sorts of other questions about things such as time uh, in the sense of predestination and omniscience and god's foreknowledge of of this sin happening and and other such things and this is this is a big problem if god is outside of time he must have known that humans were going to sin and hence why you have this phrase in Augustine's work, "O oh Felix Culpa." Felix Culpa isn't some forward for Atletico Madrid. Might be I don't know. Could be in their youth system. Instead, it means "Oh, happy sin!" It's a happy sin because God knew that it was going to happen. And why? Why is it happy? Because it allows God to show His love for humans um, later through, of course, um, sending God the Son to die on the cross, to reconcile humans back to himself. So in other words, this soteriology, this salvation history has been written from eternity. God knew that Adam would sin, it would enter the world, and then he'd have the opportunity to redeem humans through his son. It's kind of his whole theological panorama. But then this works very neatly from a theological point of view, but from a philosophical point of view does this actually mean that god is responsible for all the evil that we see in the world because he knew he kind of of built this flaw into humans that because we are conditioned by time we will eventually sin and then this will mess everything up so does it actually make god the author of sin indirectly that's my question
2: well just to, to sort of jump in from from this as well um I think sort of two things arise when I sort of hear Augustine's sort of perspective on this is when, when it comes to looking at the problem of evil in general, but particularly when we talk about Augustine's perspective on it, you know, we sort of talk about the concept of God, but we, we really sort of only focus on omnipotence, omniscience, benevolence. Um, but I think one of the key characteristics, perhaps, that we almost slightly forget in this sort of component is the other quality of justice, that God is meant to be just Um, And so when we sort of focus on Augustine sort of seeing it as very much that humans are responsible for bringing evil into the world and it's sort of stemming back to Adam and Eve, um, it really sort of leaves me feeling this great sense of injustice. You know, how can we possibly be being blamed um, for the first you know, supposedly first two humans um, who were ever created. Um, so I think it sort of, it raises that sort of, I feel like that's almost like a, a key part that's almost missing to, to Augustine. And Matt, you're clearly um, very well versed in him. Perhaps he does um, consider how just this is that humans are responsible for for sin. Um, but I, I really, it does just sort of almost fills me with this um Frustration. This just feels very unjust that humans are just seen as fully responsible for these problems. Um, and Mabel, I don't know if you wanted to sort of jump in on this, but I think Islam, when we start to look at the sort of Islamic tradition, has a very different sort of perspective on this, and doesn't, you know, does take ju- um, the quality of justice in relation to God into consideration, um, and highlights the fact that it, you know, humans are not being punished. No one's ever punished for someone else's sin, um, because that it wouldn't be what a, a just and loving God would do. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily get round the problem of evil as such. It doesn't necessarily give us uh, an overall solution. Um, but I think it certainly highlights an, an issue here with Augustine that he's really highlighting, I would say, God to be someone who's quite unfair <laughs> um, and isn't necessarily loving at all towards humans, if he'd still be punishing people for this one
1: sin.
0: Uh, Mabel, do you want to come in then and just talk about the, the the Islamic tradition?
1: Whenever I think about problem of evil, I like to think about kind of in different religious contexts as well, and whether it's just an issue with the Judeo Christian uh, approach. And actually, when we look at the ninety nine names of Allah, one of them that I always like to have a class discussion with with Year Eights, but you know, you you get some really interesting. <laughs> Uh, conversations with them is this idea of uh, one of them can loosely be translated into English as the humiliator and it's this idea of how can you have because in Islam the night names include kind of loving magnificent beneficiary king glory uh you know the uplifter but also the humiliator and we always have a discussion and the year eights always are like actually do you know what you do need some humiliation in order to have complete justice. You need to have one to have the other. I know that that goes against Augustine. It goes against that, that kind of idea that God doesn't give both. It's not that God is humiliating to the kind of Christian approach, especially. However, in Islam, you still have this idea of predestination. You still have this idea of, you know, God knows everything. God's all loving. But then you also have, God's a humiliator. He'll uplift, but he'll also, when necessary, bring you down. So that, I think, is quite an interesting perspective to kind of get over this kind of issue.
3: So for your point about um, Augustine's God seeming quite unfair, it's is a really interesting one. And I suppose it goes back to the whole issue of what, what was his starting point? I think his starting point was, of course, his view about, about Christ and the whole idea of people being punished for sins they didn't commit. This goes back, of course, to the whole idea of Jesus meant he was meant to be sinless, it goes back to the Immaculate Conception, about him dying on the cross for the sins of humanity, which, of course, he was meant to be free from. He's meant to have never committed a sin. And then it goes back to the whole kind of beautiful um, Adam typology you find in St. Paul, who, of course, of course, was a massive influence in St. Augustine, the idea that Jesus was the second Adam. If, if the human race fell in Adam... And, of course, it meant that human beings have been, for a long time, suffering and, and being, you could say, punished, or just at least feeling the results of the sin that he committed. In Jesus, you get a chance to reverse that, to have a new life. And, of course, this is where Augustine thought, through God allowing people to take benefits of, of what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection, they were able humans are able to come to a life in Christ and um, to be lifted out of life of sin. Of course, the difficult part is is that humans can't do this themselves. Humans can't turn to, to Christ themselves. God has to pick them. So here comes predestination. And here's the difficult part for me, that you can only receive the benefits of Jesus being a second Adam through God's help. Humans are so thoroughly admired in sin that they can't lift themselves out of sin. God has to lift them out of sin. And this, of course, reaches its apogee um, in later in someone like Calvin, where you have the elect and a reprobate predestined from eternity. I just can't get my head around that. So I think the unfairness doesn't come in necessarily through people being punished or feeling the results of sin that they didn't commit. For me, the problem is how do you reap the results of getting out of that problem? For both Augustine and especially for, Cal- for Calvin later, you, you can't do it yourself. It's, it's God picking and choosing who gets who gets saved. And for me, I find that really difficult, really difficult.
0: Yeah, so just some thoughts from me. In fact, just to, to summarise for the students where, where we've got to, because there's loads of really interesting things going on here. I'm sure I won't, won't, won't bring them all out. But I suppose a lot of it comes down to, certainly when thinking about the Augustinian tradition, and we'll think about some of the people as well in a moment, it comes down to free will. So really we're thinking about moral evil in particular. Remember we've bracketed natural evil, and there's an interesting issue there about the distinction, but moral evil enters and because humans are given free will. I suppose the, the extra thought then is it seemed to be somehow good. This is very much a 20th century perspective. It seemed to be good that humans have that free will, but, I mean, to cut a long story short, we're kind of misusing it but it raises all these sorts of interesting issues, which have been dotted around our discussion so far, students. So here's, here's something that I don't think is, I think I'm right in saying, it's not in any specification, but certainly it's something you should be thinking about. So if, if humans, which is kind of lying behind a lot of what's been said, particularly what, what Matt's been saying. So if humans have free will and God is omniscient, and in particular, if God has foreknowledge, how is that reconciled? Can God have foreknowledge and know what's going to happen and us still have free will? right? It goes back to the things we were saying right at the start. I think that everyone was saying is that once you, once you start unpacking this problem, there's a whole range of different things that come in. And actually, they can be really interesting, challenging, stretch discussions in the classroom to say, okay, we might have got perhaps a nice solution, or well, we've seen some skepticism about it, but a nice solution to the problem of evil, we're introducing free will here, but it creates all sorts of issues. If humans have got free will, then there's issues of predestination, God's foreknowledge. Uh, Matt's just raised this issue that in some Christian traditions, it might mean that God knows what's going to happen, in which case he's already kind of picked the winners and the losers at the start. And if you're Sophie, you think, well, that seems to be very unjust, right? So there's lots of things where you can make a bit of progress, but it raises some other big questions here. And a lot of it's coming down to that reconciliation still of, god's attributes the existence of evil and then and then the character of of human beings uh, and that's still a kind of problematic i don't know how many how many elements we've got now five six probably a kind of anyway so it's a, it's a problematic set of elements the inconsistent oh. hexagon <laughs> yeah something like that <laughs> something like that so every time you can peel it back and there's just more layers that's why so many people have thought about the problem of evil in in quite a few different traditions in a few different keys so both the theological tradition but also kind of 20th century 21st century philosophers of religion that are that trying to strip away a lot of the theological issues and just thinking about you know that the stark kind of ideas and premises okay great that was that was really interesting then so let's just leave it there we're going to continue the discussion about free will and think about some other people in the next segment so we'll see you all then and welcome back. Before we move into this segment, this is just to remind you to check out our website. If you search for my name, Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N, you'll find my personal website. Um, And then if you look at the top, uh, there's a number of tabs, and one of the tabs says Pod Schools. Click on that, and it'll take you to a link for all of the episodes so far. Uh, There's also a timetable of all the episodes coming up, and if you see something. Uh, that you're interested in, please email me with comments and questions. I'd love to have them. If you're listening to something uh, and you've got some comments or questions about it, please email in because I'm sure at some point I'll have some episodes with some teachers back and we can do a and a and fire some questions at you. So I'm sure Sophie and Matt and Mabel will tell you why exactly evil exists in in the world. Well, they'll, they'll give you the, the secrets of it all. Um, okay, so we've we've uh, introduced Augustine and thinking about a large range of his thoughts, but kind of key to that is free will. Now, I mentioned earlier that although problem of evil appears on lots of specifications, there is quite a bit of overlap. What's interesting is Augustine isn't mentioned in the AQA uh, specification for problem of evil, but other people do do appear. And one of those is uh, Alvin Plantinga, who also is thinking about free will. So Sophie, do you want to tell us what uh, Plantinga says, please?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, Plantinga is quite, is, you know, an interesting sort of perspective on this um, when it comes to free will. Um, free will obviously comes up so much when we talk about the problem of evil, of how f- how free are we truly to act. And really, it's best to sort of start off by um, trying to understand what he means by freedom. So he gives us a bit of a definition to start us off with. Um, and so he says that freedom is essentially the ability to either carry out one action or to not carry out that action that is the type of freedom that he's talking about specifically and so he's sort of perhaps working backwards in a way is then sort of saying well god has has had to have created a universe where this type of freedom is possible um and so we tend to say this is more of a we refer to this as like a weak theodicy um his theodicy is trying to understand what the possible reasons might be for why evil exists um, which is slightly different to the theodicy that Augustine sort of is coming up with. So we can sort of break it down into three key points really so he says number one um, a creature or a human that is free, um, free to act or free to be is far more valuable than a creature that is not um, which is perhaps something that's up for debate but i think most of us are probably in agreement that that is indeed correct um free creatures are far better than to just be almost like a robot of some of some sort sort of second point on from that god can create free creatures but cannot cause them to do what is the morally right thing so um and this is perhaps where a lot of debate and conversation can come around this second point but um God is able to sort of put that into motion of God of of creatures being free to act. Um, but God cannot therefore say, right, this is the action that you're going to take as such. This is the morally right thing to do in this situation. And sort of third, the sort of to bring it all together, therefore um, God has created a world in which humans are free to choose what is right and wrong. And, you know, human actions are not determined. Um, Plantinga sort of rejects this idea of determinism over human actions um, as a way to sort of explain how we've sort of gotten to this point essentially. So in a nutshell, that's that's very much his sort of perspective. We can see a lot of sort of crossover with Augustine. Um, however, there's still sort of key distinctions being made, um, which are very interesting, I think, his sort of take on just defining freedom in that way in the first place.
0: That's great. Thanks, Sophie. Uh, Matt, Mabel, any thoughts, comments from you? I think that second
3: premise is very debatable, isn't it? If you take someone like Descartes, if you're looking at the attributes of God... Descartes would say that God is capable of doing the logically impossible. The example could be something like a three-sided square or something like that, which is logically impossible. You could say that if um, Plantinga defines freedom as freedom to do one thing or do um, uh, something else, so at least two possibilities and choosing one of them and being able to carry it out. If freedom is valuable, uh, then God could make Free creatures which he nonetheless determines that would be logically impossible you could argue but if if Descartes God is one who can carry out the logically impossible why could God not create these genuinely free creatures who always choose the good who always choose the opposites of moral evil who choose moral goodness instead
1: I feel like Descartes when it comes to what is what is possible I feel like there's so much that can be critiqued with uh what Descartes thinks is uh possible that the logic still intact would mean that it's not free will that makes sense I feel like it would analytically kind of like in in language it would undermine what freedom is so whether or not Descartes God could create such a being I think ultimately such a being that has free will but always chooses good undermines the whole point of free will
3: what is the point of free will?
1: Well, that's that's a question, isn't it? <laughs> what is the point of free will? Well, if you're like so why why are
3: these free creatures inherently more valuable than say automatons or unfree creatures?
1: Uh, I would argue they're more valuable because they have opportunities that kind of automatons don't have. So in having freedom, you also have, you know. The choice and in choice comes, you know, moral worth, but also kind of general worth to the world. Like a robot can only do what it is programmed to do. Uh, arguably, if you're taking this kind of chauvinistic approach, animals can only do what they're determined to do. Um, whereas humans, from a theological perspective, from like an Augustine perspective, they exist above. These because they have that soul, and therefore the point of free will to many theologians is the capability to, you know, almost be godlike, create, do things like that. Which if we weren't free, we wouldn't be able to do.
0: Yes. So just to come in here again, students, right? So this is a really important thing to think about. The you know from from what everyone's been saying and, and Matt's very pointed question: Why are free human beings more valuable than automata? Uh, and we've just seen kind of one very important answer there, which is we're kind of well godlike in some respects, but us creating something or choosing something just makes it valuable. That's just a basic idea. There's also another tradition where we're actually free to to worship God <laughs> rather than uh, automatically worshiping God. Um, so there's value in in coming to choose to worship God. That's an interesting one for me because it almost creates
3: a like a, a need in God. It creates like a lack in God that he needs to be worshipped. So then that undermines his omnipotence. I think for me, the, the choice thing is interesting about if we're made in the image of God and we have this capacity to create, that implies that freedom is something risky. It's, it's the risk of giving us freedom so that we can love each other, that we can create, we can worship God. But then you could say, That might work at the level of, say, run-of-the-mill evil and suffering, but when it comes to what Marilyn McCord Adams called horrendous evils, she wrote a very good book called Horrendous Evils and the Goodness of God, when you come to horrendous evils, genocide and other evils of that magnitude, is the risk worth it? And that's where I start to question that first premise uh, of Plantinga's that, um, creatures with or, or beings with freedom are inherently more valuable than ones um, without freedom because with that uh, capacity to be sufficiently intelligent to make the choice comes the capacity to come up with horrendous evils like like genocide so is is the um, capacity to create or to love or to worship worth the risk of Creatures misusing this intelligence and ability to choose to create the machinery and systems of genocide.
1: Can I, when I was uh, thinking about, you know, this topic, one thing, one of the first places I went to was I've got this source sheet of quotes from Holocaust survivors on kind of why they still believe in God. And there are a couple of uh, quotes in that there was quite a famous one where basically. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, you know, Jewish faith is not about believing uh, the world to be other than it is. It's not about ignoring the evil, the darkness and the pain. It's about courage, endurance and the capacity to hold fast to ideals, even when they are ignored by others, which kind of gives this real life example of that idea that free will is valuable, because then you also have the choices uh, to overcome the evils which I always hate saying this because obviously things like genocide are so difficult and so upsetting. But if you have that theistic view, you have a view that's an eternal one. So even if you suffer a great evil in this world, you will then kind of almost get the reward for an eternity. So it's that idea of, of keeping faith despite, you know, all the horrors of, of this plane of existence.
3: Yeah, uh, it's interesting how theologians have reacted differently to events like the Holocaust. You have, of course, the Jewish theologian Richard Rubenstein saying that God died in Auschwitz. You also have a very good essay by Hans Jonas, the concept of God um, after after Auschwitz. It's interesting that Jonas takes a different view rather than focusing on anthropology and the, the whole idea of, okay, what does it mean to be human? And why do we have these choices? Why do we have this capacity to create so much evil and suffering? Jonas instead... Changes the theology and says, okay, we, we now need to have a God who suffers alongside humans, who isn't omnipotent. So, in other words, if you try to link this all the way back to the way in which the problem of evil and suffering is is framed, the inconsistent triad or however you want to call it, what Jonas does really there is, is to say, okay, we're no longer going to say that God is omnipotent. God doesn't have to be all powerful. Instead, we have a God who suffers alongside, who, who offers moral guidance. And, and support for um, for human beings, rather than one who is some kind of sovereign with unlimited power, almost like the opposite of Descartes, God who can do the logically impossible. But for me, the question is, okay, if you lose the concept of omnipotence, what else do you lose? Um, and so about, does God need to be omnipotent? What do people think?
1: You could bring in Augustine's idea of the Trinity in here. Uh, and you could bring in that kind of idea that that almost God is in those roles. So you've got the human side of God, and then you've got the kind of sovereign side of God, and you've got the God alongside humans all in one with the Christian God, because it's that idea of, you know, he can be all these things. He can suffer alongside, but also be all powerful. And so kind of looking at uh, Augustine's piece on the Trinity, you can kind of see how he would fill those gaps that kind of come up as as you said with this idea of a suffering god
2: yeah i think um you know to sort of come back to to what you were saying matt about you know how important is omnipotence and you know it's sort of making me think about um mary midgley's response to the problem of evil isn't from an atheistic perspective um and she sort of says that actually this the whole problem of evil is nothing to do with god it is it is just to do with humans. Um, it is to do with um, humans and how they choose to act. And um, she sort of says that actually evil happens when two failures take place. So you've got the followers, those who just allow evil to happen, and the instigators, the ones who actually carry out the evil acts. And so in many ways, you know, in that sense, obviously coming from that atheistic perspective, it doesn't matter what qualities God has, because she's sort of saying that actually God isn't even the question here. The thing that we should ultimately be focusing on um, is the role that humans have have to play in this. Humans are responsible for the suffering. And, you know, talking about... Um, examples of genocide for example when we were talking earlier about the distinction between natural and moral evil um we do start to see that as more and more sort of evident i think a lot of the time i find that to be the discussion in in the classroom is that actually you know this isn't a god issue this is a human issue the problem of evil
3: i think it is it's very much a human issue um, indeed in terms of how we run society in terms of how human beings are but if you were religious and of course a, a good portion of the planet um, claims to be uh, a theist of, of one sort or another so for the people particularly people who are non-theistic, how does the human issue reflect on God uh, if God is of course the, um, the creator of these human beings and meant to be um, ultimately responsible for them then it does reflect badly on God it goes back to humans being made in God's image but then can we can we just say that if, if we reject the idea of God uh, being omnipotent in the first place does this solve a problem of evil what do, in other words what do we lose if anything if we say okay there is no inconsistent triad uh, we can just say that god is all loving evil does exist god does his best to deal with it but humans are, are just out of control um, and humans are are really the cause of the most significant forms of evil and suffering do we need omnipotence or, or can we just sign it sign it away
2: mm, i think um theologically it fills almost sort of wrong to try and suggest that God wouldn't have omnipotence that feels almost like one of the the core the core parts to God when we talk about him in that sort of traditional Judeo-Christian senses and you know if he wasn't omnipotent then how would he have been able to have created the universe in the first place um so it does seem that that is you know a vital quality a vital characteristic that he must have that in order for, you know, for us to even be here having this conversation in the first place.
3: I think, Mabel, going back to your point as well about kind of a, a hereafter as well, if, if God is omnipotent, then he can, if we're looking to, to hereafter to almost compensate people for all the suffering they've experienced, if God isn't omnipotent, then he can't guarantee that, that kind of faith and trust we have in God might be misplaced if he cannot guarantee some kind of better heaven, some kind of better
0: hereafter. So I was just going to um, just some reflections from me because there are kind of various traditions, sometimes quite radical traditions, which do think about playing around with the attributes of God. Pl- playing around is probably probably the wrong word, right? But but just lessening them and thinking their way around it. So it might be that God isn't omnipotent. I mean, you know, there's always that debate about can God create a stone that's too heavy for him to lift, and so on, kind of those toy examples but now we're into kind of more serious examples so god might be powerful enough to create the universe but perhaps he's not powerful enough to control it he sets it in motion but uh your phrase matt you know he's created humans but they're but they're out of control and i suppose then the thought is going back to to sophie's thought it's not traditional th- theology but it might be that god is still powerful enough that he's deserving of worship and, and faith and similarly with omniscience i mean i've already raised the the issue that god might Know quite a lot but he might not have foreknowledge uh, but he might still be be you know have far more knowledge and wisdom than than we have and so might still be worthy of faith and belief and and worship the interesting one though is whether god is all loving because of course there are some traditions that then think about whether god is completely all good or whether he he kind of knew what he was doing (laughs) And and uh, so it's very much not the Augustine tradition that you introduced us to, Matt. You know, right at the start, where God did know that evil was coming into the world and He did create it, um, or so su- suspected that uh, there was a chance that, that evil would come in and, and bad acts, and uh, but He was okay with that. And so it's probably interesting for students to think, you know, if you lessen or weaken any of the any of the uh, the main attributes of god can he still be worthy of worship can he still be like the gods that we're used to and is that i mean it might then solve the problem of evil but what does that what does that leave us with and that's another interesting exercise um,
3: i think fine can we have, have a quick detour into that so we, we've already tried to do away with omnipotence what if we do what if we do away with the idea what we find from say aquinas in particular, that God, by his very nature, is good, that he's benevolent. Interesting um, one to think about this. If you have someone like Luigi Pereson, who's a little-known 20th-century Italian philosopher, and he wrote near the end of his life quite a bit on the problem of evil. So we're talking the 1990s here. And he said that God, by his nature, cannot be good because he drew upon Hume's fact-value distinction. You cannot derive an ought from an is, so he tries to keep those two things separate. God is, and so therefore God cannot have a moral imperative built into him. He also said that God cannot be compelled to choose good. So he cannot, be, he cannot choose good from necessity. So what Parason said is that with his version of God, God by his nature is not good. So he cannot say God is good. He is by his nature neutral. He's not compelled to be good, so he freely chooses good. Parason said that God's got all the different possibilities of good and evil and everything in between in his mind, but then God chooses to do good. As humans are created in the image of God, we also have those possibilities in our mind. But a bit like the devil in, say, Augustinian theodicy, And within the biblical tradition, humans, like the devil, become arrogant. We want to try to be like God, um, but we mess up. We're finite. We're not as powerful as God is and not as uh, wise and omniscient as God is. And so we we choose evil by mistake uh, in order to try to become like God, more like God. So God is not by nature good. And Paracen said he cannot be forced to be good. So he willingly, freely chooses to be good, humans made in God's image. We choose one of God's untapped possibilities, and instead we uh, end up choosing evil. And that's what we find with Adam and Eve and also with subsequent humans. What, What do we make of that? Does this get around a problem of evil, or does it store up other problems?
2: I think that it's it does it sort of creates a whole load of, of problems, doesn't it? You know, we do tend to sort of um, associate God with being the holy good being, um, and we sort of see that throughout sort of um, philosophies around you know the concept of God. Um, but I guess one of the sort of alternative theology responses is that perhaps there is a, a dualist um, sort of perspective to this that God is you know perhaps the the good powerful being that exists, but perhaps there is the alternative really evil superpower that also exists. You know, why couldn't that also be the case? Um, If it's possible for there to be uh, a good being, then perhaps it's possible for there to be a, a supremely bad being as well. But I think I think it sort of undermines the, you know, if, if we'd say that actually perhaps God doesn't have to be good, really, it starts to undermine all of the other sort of omni words that we associate God with. Because then, well, what would it mean for him to be loving? Um, does that mean that he doesn't really have the power to do that? Does it mean that he doesn't really have the power to intervene um when when bad things are happening because perhaps he just doesn't really care that much because he's not that good um but at the same time i think it does raise a really important question about you know why is it that we do have to that we try to see god as being ultimately good and um, when we sort of branch out and start to look at sort of other um understandings of god that aren't necessarily traditionally sort of from the Abrahamic faith, when we look at Hinduism, for example, destruction is uh, an aspect of God that is worshipped, you know, and if you look at like the goddess of Kali, if you look at Shiva, you know, it is accepted that those are qualities of God that God must have for God to be logically comprehensible. God is everything and so has to encompass, you know, the, the things that we call quote unquote bad as well. Um, so yeah perhaps it, it is this sort of fundamental concept of god that really is, is the problem here it's not evil it's our understanding of god that is the problem so yeah it raises again another sort of can of worms opened really <laughs> with this
3: i think that's really interesting going really, into hinduism there because you've got these um but for me a, a significant distinction is if you have destruction destruction is of course a verb you can destroy something which is bad you can destroy um a, a genocidal army, for example, and that would be a good thing. But when you've got these possi- when you've got these judgments, like good and bad, as ideas in the mind of God, or these possibilities in, in the mind of God, for me this raises not so much a theological question but more a meta-ethical one. What is it which makes those ideas or possibilities in the mind of God good and bad? Of course, Peraisons, God doesn't choose the bad ones, but what makes them good and bad in the first place? And then it almost seems something platonic. Is there something above God then, which is um, He's tapping into, or God's tapping into, in order to, to get these ideas of good and bad? And then we're back into things like the Euthyphro dilemma: What is it which makes something good? Um, is it God just choosing it? Uh, then God becomes arbitrary if He's choosing it because it is good, and He wants to avoid choosing the bad. What is it which makes that possibility good? This um, this choice which He makes why does he choose the good idea rather than the bad one? Um, and where does the good and bad come from then? It seems to imply there's like another metaphysical layer above God, which is of higher importance or has more influence than him. So I think Pareson gets out of a traditional problem of evil, but then he leaves himself with meta-ethical and metaphysical problems to solve.
1: I mean, you could link that to Kant and Kant's idea of the highest good coming from God. So that idea that we have that goodwill, but that goodwill only exists as good because it comes from God, essentially. So you can kind of um, look into that idea in terms of anything, but that would make anything God chooses as good. So earthquakes, natural evil, famine, etc. All of those things would be good if we're defining good by God's choices, almost. <laughs> yeah, which, is, which is a
3: huge problem you know, yeah. he says to abraham you know kill, kill your son oh and don't kill your son so he seems to go back on himself um he becomes arbitrary as a result but otherwise then we're left of a higher standard above god if god's choosing something because it is good and avoiding choosing a bad possibilities within him where do those possibilities
0: come from and, and what what is it which makes them good or bad yeah so just some thoughts from me So students, you thought it was going to be a nice, neat problem that you could summarise in three or four lines. But I think we've shown that not just through the history of Philosophical and theological thought, but just just thinking about those different attributes and the existence of evil gets you into all sorts of interesting issues about free will and determinism and foreknowledge and what God's attributes are, and thoughts about good and evil. And then just to go back on on what we were talking about about five minutes ago, I had exactly the same thought, Matt, as you know, as Sophie was was talking. So, it's another stretch exercise. I don't think it's in any of the specifications mentioned. Um, certainly under problem of evil. But students look up the use dilemma from Plato. So is, is good good because God is good, or is God good because good is good? Like that's basically the short version of what Matt was saying five minutes ago. And really think about what's, the, as it were, the higher authority. Is it God or is it goodness? And that's a really, really interesting issue to think about and flows out from all the discussion we've been having about free will and, and everything else so listen i I think let's leave that segment there we're going to come on to a different tradition in the third segment but i think we're going to see some of these same thoughts repeat and welcome back okay so we've introduced the problem of evil And We've thought about uh, free will, we've thought about Augustine, we've thought about Plantinga, we've thought about a whole host of other things that uh, come out of uh, thinking about the problem of evil. We're now going to think about a slightly different tradition and a set of ideas. Um, And Sophie, you're going to introduce this for us.
2: Yeah, so um, our next sort of the side of this um, really sort of comes under the the term of the soul making theodicy so sort of stepping away from the free will defense um we're still thinking about free will free will comes up still within this um but this really starts off with um Irenaeus so Saint Irenaeus writing um sort of between 100 to 200 AD different to Augustine obviously they they have similarities they're both Christian theologians both philosophers um but Irenaeus sort of takes a, a different perspective on why evil is happening um, and so to Irenaeus evil is is sort of um, something that isn't necessarily entirely something that humans are accountable for in the way in which Augustine perceives it to be. So to Irenaeus, instead, it's that the world and humans that exist within it are imperfect, but that is for a purpose. And that is so so that we can reach our full potential of growing into good beings. So goodness is sort of out there beyond us and it's within our reach, but it's something that we have to um, go through life and go through experiences and deal with evil in order to reach that full human potential. So a lot of sort of crossover in a way with um, Augustine and certain similarities, particularly the role that free will has within that, um, you know, humans still within that are free to make the right and the wrong decisions. But it's it's almost seeing it as the, the evil is happening for a reason. It's not that humans are just causing it. And Hick sort of picks up on this. Um, Hick also sort of coming from that Christian theological perspective, um, whose name sort of pops up again when we look at religious language um, for AQA and also pops up um, when we're looking at reasons for God's existence in the first place. And Hick really sort of um, takes what Irenaeus is saying and highlights the fact that overall, this actually, the fact that we experience that the sort of test of evil makes it so that we develop a more sort of valuable relationship, not only with each other, but with God as well. Um, and it it's sort of links to um, the sort of idea that we often see in Christianity of trying to explain why evil happens. It's because it is a test. It's that God is perhaps trying to test you and develop your character and develop your skill, because ultimately, and we sort of mentioned this idea before, is it valuable for us to be robots or not? Um, Hick and to Irenaeus as well, what is the point of... Of being a robot we have to have that free will we have to be able to to make those decisions and to come up and face evil um because otherwise god isn't worth worshipping and likewise we we wouldn't be worthy of reaching that full potential of goodness
1: in the future
0: great thanks sophie uh matt mabel any thoughts from you about that
1: i thought it was interesting that idea of of a test because, you know, we've gone this far and we haven't mentioned, you know, biblical solutions of Job in the problems of evil, which I think is uh, it's quite impressive of us. Um, but you've got that idea of, of Job and the whole point of Job is that God doesn't test us. We just don't understand God in the way that we think we do. So, you know, that idea of we're made almost imper- perfectly imperfect To to Hicks, And then you've got this idea of we we develop and it allows us to build character. I think that's that's quite interesting when you look at it in the kind of theological scope of Job with, you know, someone who's had everything taken away from them uh, in kind of this divine bet between uh, God and Satan, essentially, Um, and then just tries to muddle through understanding why they're suffering. And in the end, the resolution is never given. It it wasn't a test. It wasn't, you know, there was no reason to it. It was just that God can. God controls everything we don't understand. So, you know, that idea that God tests us, I think, is quite a hard concept to kind of theologically make right. Yeah, just to sort of add to that, Hick sort of um, asked
2: the question of, okay, you know, we we, we experience this unperfect world where um, where evil happens, but when we sort of do the thought experiment of imagining a world where there is no suffering, where every, you know, every person is able to thrive really, it then becomes a question of well, what would be the, the purpose of a life like that? Is that a world where anyone, any human would truly be able to thrive? And it's sort of, you know, that world almost doesn't really sound that appealing to us when we really start to break it down and consider it. Um, you know, when when we sort of um, go through those experiences of suffering, so in the case of Job, of losing his family and losing his sort of livelihood, it's only in those moments of suffering that he really can distinguish, you know, his own character and developing that sort of um, understanding of what it actually means to be good. Um, I always use the example of the song by Fatboy Slim, which none of my students um, ever know. I think it's an outdated reference now. Um, but it's got to get bad before it gets good. You have to experience the bad things in life to really know when the highs are even happening. Otherwise, good there is no good in the first place. It, it, you have to have both sides of the coin. So that harshness that we experience um, is actually something that's really valuable to humans. We have to go through that in order to become better humans in the first place
3: well the way I think about the Hick irony and theodicy is a bit like that Nietzsche quote which you might have stolen from Kelly Clarkson whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger um and I think there's a lot of that in um in in Hick and Irenaeus I think it works to a point I think it works to a point but I think there are many problems with Hick irony and uh theodicy and the, the whole point is for me is about what if the suffering is not the sort which you can learn from, like maybe failing a driving test or something like that, oh, I'll learn to drive, I'll I'll do it better next time, or I'll, I'll work harder, I'll overcome the suffering, the disappointment of failing the driving test, I'll be a better driver. What if that suffering either obliterates you, when you look in, the, I know it's a horrible thing to bring up, but something like the Moores murders, when you look at poor Keith Bennett's mother, when when she lost Keith Bennett, When you look at her face from that point on for 50, 60 years until she passed away, it's utterly crushed her. She was a completely broken woman and it wasn't through want of trying, just never being able to find his body. It was utterly, utterly crushing. This was somebody who lost a child and it was utterly, utterly crushing. You could either not be killed yourself, but the suffering is so crushing, you don't grow as a person you can go backwards or other opportunities for growth could be gone. Or alternatively, you could be killed. And that, of course, is is terrible suffering itself. And then you don't get the opportunity to grow. And of course, you could say, well, other people have the opportunity to grow. They can try to reflect on the meaning of life and goodness and things like that and become better people in light of that or change the world to become better, introduce more human rights and things like that. Or maybe you could grow in some kind of, afterlife because of both, both Irenaeus and Hick both talked about there being an afterlife, moving image to likeness of God, which continues post-mortem and in Hick's case to universal salvation. But then we're left, with, for me, which is the biggest problem there is what DZ Phillips calls an instrumental good. Somebody, somebody else's suffering, even to the point of death becomes instrumental. It becomes a learning opportunity for other people. And then going back to Kant and the link to ethics, you're using somebody there solely as a means to an end, which is unethical. So you're creating a, an opportunity for learning, which is using tremendous suffering, sometimes horrendous evils. How, genocide being used as a means to an end for growth of humanity. I've, I've sometimes heard that argument be used, which I, I think is um, potentially monstrous. Uh, so I, I have deep moral issues as, lo- as well as logistical problems with the hick irony and theodicy
2: yeah and I, and I completely agree and I don't think it actually solves you know the inconsistent triad because how could a benevolent God an all-loving God ever allow humans to just suffer and almost encourage that and um you know that really does make it seem like, that isn't necessarily a god that is worthy of worship which is something that we've spoken about earlier as well um because that it again it seems unjust it seems completely unfair um because likewise you know there are some people who suffer um it you know in awful sort of um experiences and others who do not necessarily go through a, an incredible amount of suffering in their life you know there are the the those who we might refer to as privileged, for example, who won't necessarily experience the real hardship. So where how is that fair that suffering is not equally distributed? Not everyone goes through an equal amount of trials to develop into a good being and to reach that full potential that sort of Hick refers to it as. So, you know, it, it, it certainly doesn't necessarily... Um, do away with the problem of evil. It just makes it seem that God enjoys watching people suffering, um, and always gets pleasure from that.
0: So, shall I just take us on then? Because I think, um, I mean, I agree completely with what all three of you say here. Particularly, you know, the, the, the last thoughts from you, Matt, and you, Sophie, about the the problems with with the uh, Hicks defence. But we've we've kind of gone around a huge number of topics here, trying to. Think about uh, not just what the problem of evil raises, but whether we can solve it, and different ways of, of looking at it. And I suppose what, what's interesting for me then is a kind of you know broad evaluation. So I suppose that there's there's two main questions. You know, how significant is the problem of evil, and is there anything that comes close to addressing it so that you know we, we, we're less worried about it, that it makes more sense of God or anything along that that lines any kind of positive responses we can make but so i'm just thinking you know where, where the three of you sit with uh not just you know everything we've said but you know all the other things going on
2: Shall i go first on this one <laughs> um... Yeah, I think, I think the problem of evil, um, from my sort of personal perspective, it raises a huge number of issues when we look at the concept of God. And I think that's fundamentally what we sort of come back to, is this concept of God that we're talking about is the Judeo-Christian concept. And um, really, so much of it stems from trying to fit these characteristics together so that they logically work when we've got this problem of evil. Um, but I think actually, you know, and this is something... that that's come up a lot with my students um this year when we've been looking at the problem of evil is you know why is it that um perhaps we should not focus so much on this judeo-christian concept of god and actually the you know, when we start to look at alternative theologies and when we start to look at different religious understandings of God, perhaps actually the problem of evil lessens slightly and evil is something that we can reconcile with an existence of God, as mentioned in the example of, with Islam that we've looked at, as mentioned in the example of um, Hinduism, for example. So perhaps it isn't necessarily as much of a problem. It's a problem for the Judeo-Christian concept of God, but not for, not for all, co- all forms that God perhaps takes.
0: OK, great. Thank you. Matt, Mabel, any thoughts from you?
1: I think that actually, despite, you know, all of the logical conversations we had, you know, you couldn't reconcile the problem of evil. I think ultimately I don't see the problem of evil as being that much of an issue for a theist. I think often humans think they know higher powers or, or they try and, and think they know God's attributes for instance, and they think they know divine justice. Um, But actually, if you think about it, especially in, um, say, other traditions, as Sophie said, even within Christianity, so one of my lecturers at uni told me my favourite fun fact, which is the difference between Eastern Orthodox church bells and Western Orthodox church bells, where the Eastern Orthodox church bells don't have a rhythm or tune, western orthodox church bells do and it's because of this understanding of god in western orthodox traditions or anglicanism etc uh christians think they know god and that they can know god and they can have this personal relationship but eastern orthodox traditions think they can only know like two percent of god they won't have such an issue with this kind of or reconciling tussling with this idea of god's justice so i think if you if you you know are a theist and you have that kind of God has a plan for me mentality, I think the problem of evil just isn't really that much of a of a big deal to them. Unlike people who may already be kind of on the atheistic spectrum of of religion. They're raised Christian, for instance, but they can't quite reconcile it. I think, you know, be a bigger issue for people like, like that, just purely because of this idea of faith, whether God allows evil or not, if you have a faith in an all-loving, all-powerful God, you've got a faith in an all-loving, all-powerful God. Does that make any sense? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt, any thoughts from you?
3: Yeah, I think the problem of evil and suffering is is a really important one. Of course, if you are, um, as Mabel said, of more of an atheistic persuasion, it's going to seem more of an insuperable problem and you'll be less inclined to accept mystery or, or lack of knowledge. I think it's a very good point in the fact that we can't be too presumptuous to know God's will so that you know God can work in mysterious ways, although I've never really liked that solution. One thing I've, that's always um, prevented me from thinking that any, any theodicy is persuasive is that it goes back to the problem of, of free will. And this is, of course, important to Augustine because we've got um, Adam and Eve really choosing to disobey God. To plant injured, that's the basis of his theodicy, and Irenaeus and Hick is the basis of that theodicy too, using your free will to overcome evil and suffering to become a better person in order to be ready for heaven. I also think to myself, logically, thinking about counterfactuals, if we have the concept of heaven, heaven, idea of heaven is a place presumably without evil and suffering, do we have free will in heaven? If we have free will in heaven... God could have created and can create a state in which we have both free will and a lack of evil and suffering. They're both compatible. If God could do that, why did he instead choose to create the situation which we have on earth? If God could have done better, then maybe God isn't omnipotent or maybe God is not benevolent and would prefer to have the whole show of the whole tragicomedy of of human existence. So the other way of thinking about it is maybe we don't have free will in heaven, in which case, why is free will even important if God will eventually lead us into a state where we don't have the capacity to choose? So again, if that is the case, why not fast forward and skip this whole stage where we are doing horrible things to one another and experiencing evil and suffering and fast forward to the state, particularly if we believe in Hick's idea of universal salvation where we're in a situation where all human beings are like automatons, but without experiencing evil and suffering. Either way, we have this problem that we're in this place at the moment where we seem, although it's not exactly an open and shut um, case where we that we do have free will and things are imperfect. If God could eventually create a place where things are perfect and we may or may not have free will. So for me, this, this is a big problem using this idea of counterfactuals to explore the possibilities of, of God, heaven and human free will or lack of. And, and so this, this for me creates a big problem for um, a theistic idea of, of, well, of theism in relation
0: to evil and suffering. Uh, thanks, Matt. And thank, thanks all, all three of you. Some really interesting thoughts. And in fact, very different takes on on where you are with Problem Evil and you know following our discussion. And so, you know, if you're a student, there's a huge amount we've packed in here. It's not these simple kind of five or six lines. There's a load of things going on here. Just to go through some of them again, there's issues of foreknowledge and omniscience and free will and determinism. Matt's just introduced a really nice question <laughs> Um, you know well if we've got uh, free will here on earth uh, and we've got evil then what's heaven like what exactly is heaven like do we have free will in heaven Uh, in which case is it just a repeat of this but it probably isn't in which case why are we going through this world in the first place some really good questions But listen, let's leave things there. I that was a really great episode. Thanks, all three of you. And I hope uh, you enjoyed it listening at home. We we should thank our guests, though. So Sophie, thanks very much for coming on.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, And Matt, thanks for coming on again.
3: Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it.
0: Uh, And Mabel, uh, thanks to you as well.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, and thanks to you for listening hope you enjoyed it and i hope you listen to more of our episodes of philosophy get schooled